everyone and welcome to Celebrating Cinema, a podcast striving to rebuild our beloved community, creating a more inclusive and shared experience. I'm as always joined by... Hi, I'm Tom, programmer of Lab 111. And... I'm Kiriko, I'm a filmmaker and writer. And today we have a very special guest amongst us. We have invited Basje Boer, film critic and author, to discuss... Well, I think we're about to find out. Basje, the mic is yours. In the darkness of a movie theater, we can pretend to be all alone with the bright figures on the screen. These people might seem ordinary, dressed in ordinary clothes, yet they are not ordinary. They move smoothly and without effort, their bodies are weightless. These humans are elevated humans, approaching perfection, and we long to be with them. In the darkness, we can imagine we are with them, at least for the duration of the movie. Cinema offers a distinctly erotic experience. Imagine how the first movie audiences must have felt, sitting in the dark, watching those moving images for the very first time. How exciting it must have been for people that were used to looking at paintings and plays, circuses and carnivals, photography and pornography. None of these spectacles stir as much desire in a person as the movies do. And yet, there has always been a difference in the way we, the audience, view men and women. Whether you identify as a man or a woman, and whatever sexual preference you may have, most movies have, since the very beginning of Hollywood and its international counterparts, encouraged you to view the world through the eyes of the male, heterosexual protagonist. In other words, you are encouraged to desire women and to identify with men. Which means that whatever happens in the story, the woman is a passive character, and a man is an active one. Film journalist Jessica Kiang writes about this disbalance in a collection of essays about female desire and film called She Found It at the Movies. Quote, Within those men's lusty, it-driven narratives, the women who show up are almost always there to be somethinged, looked at, rescued, decoded, denuded, mistrusted, relied on, adored, despised, idealized, castigated, won, lost, unzipped by virtue of a magnetic watch, or smooshed in the face with a grapefruit. We are there to have things felt about us." Unquote. Of course, this disbalance is problematic, and one of the ways to solve this problem is for heterosexual men in the movie industry to make room for other voices that focus on other perspectives. Of course, the same goes for racial disparities. But there's something else too. I think there's an enormous erotic potential in restoring this balance. Let me quote another writer who contributed to She Found It at the Movies. Sarah Elizabeth Adler writes about Greece and the erotic appeal of butch and femme lesbians she recognizes in Pink Lady Rizzo and T-Bird Kanicki. Quote, I loved watching Kanicki sit on the bleachers on the first day of school. Legs splayed out, jeans cuffed. He's smoking a cigarette, and the next one is already tucked behind his ear. Kanekiness, like butchness, is all in the details. His shirt is light blue, cottony, a little boy's color under a leather jacket. You can see the crescent of his white socks over the edge of his mean black boots. The soft under the heart. Kind of like how, in the opening sequence, cartoon Rizzo wears a white bra with hearts under her black shirt. These details thrill me because I view eroticism as a matter of sacred contrasts, the difference between butches and femmes, 
the baby blue t-shirt under a black leather jacket, the difference between the hardness that someone shows to the world and the secret softness that lurks beneath." Unquote. I too believe that eroticism is to be found in balance, a precocious balance, or in other words, tension. Watching a man dominate a woman, or the other way around, is boring, but watching them find a balance is interesting. Looking and being looked at is part of this balance. We have looked at women endlessly, and we have looked at men looking at them. Now wouldn't it be interesting to have these women look back, or to let them tell you about what it is like for them to be looked at? Which is not just fair or feminist, it's hot. One director who has always been interested in telling stories about what it is like to be looked at, and who turns those stories into gorgeous, sensual movies, is Sofia Coppola. She invites us into worlds that are filled to the brim with pastels and pink clouds, cakes and champagne, pretty faces and soft voices, sparkling diamonds and the finest clothing, only to show us how passive the women, and sometimes men, are that inhabit them. Her movies are melancholy, light-hearted, funny and sensuous, and in the beguiled in which a wounded corporal is placed in front of a group of women of different ages, she not only tells a story about balance between the sexes, or actually a downright battle of the sexes, a power struggle, but she also shows us how to tell a story that is balanced out. The women desire this man, he desires them, we sympathize with all of them. This gaze is neither male or female, it's just horny. <laughs> well, where to start? Well, first of all, thank you for this beautiful cold open. It was, first off, very sexy. Okay, thank um, you. <laughs> yeah, I think we all watched The Beguiled in the past week. Miss Martha! Miss Martha! Is he dead? No, get him inside. Quick! You're our most unwelcome visitor, and we do not propose to entertain you. You'll find them easily amused. You won't be here long enough for that. How did you end up in this place? Why are you so interested in me? I admire your strength. I'm just trying to give them what they need to survive in these times. If you could have anything in the world, what would it be? To be taken far away from here. Come with me. He seems to be a sensitive person. Does he? I have to admit, Sofia Coppola was my favorite director when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And now, with you reading out this cold open, it has perhaps become clear to me why that is and why I was so attracted to her films. But it was the only film that I hadn't seen, films that she had made. I don't know if you had seen it before already. Yeah, I saw it when it got released in Cannes and I already thought it was very interesting but maybe more as sly comedy and I really appreciate you seeing it in this context which does make it maybe even more leveled than I already thought it was. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what you thought of it, Kirko. I find it interesting how you say that it is a balanced way of how the female gaze and the male gaze mirror each other because I'm not sure if that's the experience I had when I was watching it especially because I felt this, there's this huge flip in the film almost towards the end when the wounded soldier, what is he? He's a corporal. He's a corporal. He's Colin Farrell. 
He's, John McBurney? Yes. Yeah, his name? He's, he's Colin Farrell. Where, where he um, gets pushed down the stairs and then all of a sudden becomes the man that we all fear and the man that we hoped that he wasn't and the man that is essentially, eventually, always every man in, in how I experience stories and, and movies, but also partially in, in life, of course. Mm -hmm. so to me, the sensuality sort of became almost like a reveal of reality. What seemed to be a play between boys and girls or girls and a boy seducing each other, which then turned into, ah, this is what we had been looking for the whole time. So it was, to me, just men being men and, and <laughs> eventually quite painful in a fantastic way, of course, in the way it was shown. Yeah, it's about a power struggle and seduction is one of the the things that they use in the struggle. And it's interesting, he, he does turn into this scary guy uh, after he falls down the stairs or is pushed down the stairs mm. actually mm -hmm. because he is weak and he doesn't have his powers anymore. Because before that he, he's wounded but he still has this power of seduction and he can seduce these women. And then he gets, because before he... She, should we spoil this? I'm I think not... we can spoil okay. this. Before he's pushed down the stairs, he is revealed as a, a slime bag, actually. And he is revealed as someone that is telling all these different women and girls different stories about who he is. Yeah. And he lets yeah. them project different characters onto him, which is seductive and which is part of this game also in real life. But he uses it and, well, it is revealed that this is his game. And then he, how do you call it? Not the upper hand, but the... The lower hand. The yeah, lower hand? Gets... I don't know. <laughs> the women have the upper hand and that's when he turns nasty. Everything's going to change around here from now on. Let me tell you how it's going to go. You don't even know why Edwina threw me down those stairs. Or why you're Miss Martha there. She took my leg. Because I wouldn't go to her room or Edwina's. No, 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 they didn't like that that much. That's enough. I tell you, it's enough. Yeah, he feels like uh, at that moment he becomes more and more, I guess, animalistic. And you, you can kind of see this desperate beast in the corner just lashing out or something. But it's also mostly desperate because it, you can feel that his power is, you know, slipping away or he's, he's losing it. I really like the film and I really like, Basha, what you said about that the case is maybe neither male or female and i think this is definitely something that we'll get into because often when we're now talking about you know the male gaze it automatically implies the existence of a female gaze and this is something that you've written about and thought about a lot so i'm curious about that what i really like about this film is how it also so slyly plays this balance game with the film that it is a remake of i guess no they're both adaptations yeah. of a book yeah. Mm. So Don Siegel made adaptation in 1971, yeah. which is completely different from yes, this one. Yes, absolutely. And it's quite terrible, I think. In what yeah. way? All the characters are just like monsters in it's a way. It's absolutely Espe especially the women. And grotesque film. Yeah, it's like Don Siegel, of course, is quite a reactionary guy in cinema who made the Dirty Harry films, and this this one also stars Clint Eastwood. Mm. <laughs> Wait a minute. Friend Wait a friend of the show. This is the, the reason why we're talking about this. <laughs> yes. In the end, this episode today friend brings... Of the <laughs> oh my God. We don't have to talk about Clint that much. 
this episode brings together my big obsessions, Colin Farrell and Clint Eastwood. Yeah, but it's like everybody in the film is absolutely nasty and horrific and grotesque. And somehow yeah, grotesque. Clint Eastwood is somehow the character of reason, even though it is totally implied that he's kissing with like an underage girl immediately at the beginning of the film. What's your name, girl? Amy. I'm Corporal John McBurney, but everybody calls me McBee. How old are you, Amy? Twelve. Thirteen in September. Old enough for kisses. However, the film seems to follow more of a dream logic and is more, I would say, lucid in its take on power and sexuality. Maybe also is in that sense not so insightful and it seems like Coppola you could argue makes a more clinical approach but maybe your balanced description suits the film better. I think it's really good how she can make Colin Farrell this this character a, a sympathetic one. I mean, I'm I'm rooting for him, but I'm rooting also for the women. And in the end everybody loses. It's a really sad ending and I won't spoil the whole ending, but you can see these women camera views them through the yeah, through the fence. Yeah. So they're just it's like they're in with, a cage. It's like yeah. most of the Coppola films. Yeah, the gilded cage kind of yeah. lady that's somehow stuck between this patriarchal society. But the thing is, I always thought that her films were about luxury and privilege and how you can get trapped in those things. But now I thought maybe it's also about how you can get trapped in civilization and here you have this this soldier who represents sense war and the most oh yeah he is there to play a boys game like the american civil war is playing in the background it's like the machines of history are grinding and it's the male population that is you know operating the machines and that's the driving force of history and then you have that little oasis that's kind of forgotten in time. Yeah, and it also, this oasis represents education. I mean, what is it? Yeah, actually? it's a girls boarding girls school. school. Yeah. yeah. So it represents education and they're really refined and they dress up and it's this um, female softness and civilization. And then this man comes in and he represents aggression and, but also sex. And yeah. they're really interested in that. And you have in the beginning this scene where Nicole Kidman, uh, who plays the director of the school, yeah. She's washing this wounded uh, corporal and she's really turned on and it's you, you can really tell that she's turned on and we are also watching this the body of this man so that's a really interesting scene I never see scenes like this where and she is the one who who can repress it the longest because she's the oldest mm -hmm. so and then there's the, the different stages of all these women who react different but she's the one that that I love that scene actually it's, yeah she keeps washing him. I saw in the, I was looking up trivia. Apparently she was washing him for two hours because the scene took so long to shoot. <laughs> he was really, really dirty. He was really <laughs> dirty. Colin yeah. Farrell was being a very, very yeah. dirty guy. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, well, he wasn't allowed to wash his hair during production. Colin Farrell always looks like he doesn't wash his hair for production. So. What did you think of the film? I thought that balance was really interesting. The thing that we keep on returning to discuss is that it's so odd to see that your sympathies for these characters keep on flipping constantly. I found it was very interesting that you said, Kiriko, that he turns up to be prototypical angry gentleman in the end. Because for me, I was looking at it, if somebody cuts my leg off, 
I'm going to be fucking pissed. She had no choice. I mean, slow. Yeah, but did she? <laughs> we she had we're no not choice. really he sure. Doesn't, he doesn't know that. He doesn't know that. No, and, and still, I think maybe we're supposed to not be sure about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because she has mm, that line, cool. get the, ano- get the anatomy, anatomy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is and one of the funniest lines. Yeah. Yes, and it's really like this funny horror movie yeah. all of a sudden. You need to remove it. The leg is badly broken. I can't repair it. I'm not a surgeon. He's losing so much blood. Please. The leg will mortify by the morning. What do you want me to do? Do you want him to die? No. Edwina, look at me. I need rags. I need chloroform. Go to the smokehouse. Get the saw. Now. Hurry. Hurry! Quickly. He's losing blood. Edwina, bring me the anatomy book. And who knows if that anatomy book is any good anyway. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you don't know. And Slavoj Zizek would have like a ball thinking of ways how to, you know, compare this amputation to another thing or oh, whatever. Yeah, he'll I mean, probably bring in Only God Forgives and how the cutting of the hands in that movie is also the castration of the man. And so on, and so on. That reading works for the film as well. And then he turns out to be this beastly, you know, desperate, sickly guy. And it's it's sound. I think it... it yeah. It, I want to point out one really specific thing that I think made that balance work so much is that she leaves out so much. Mm-hmm. There are moments where you actually think like, wait a minute, has he been talking to her in another scene? Mm. No. So there's like these... Apparently he's already meeting all these girls outside of the scenes that we see which makes it incredibly ambiguous so you have to sort of fill in the blanks and that makes that makes that balance i guess and it also makes you one of the girls there who is trying to find out who has been talking to exactly. right yeah. it's like summer camp and some of the people are going over to the other cool room where there's like the boys or the girls and maybe you are not and you're like wait a minute am <laughs> is i this now a summer at- camp trauma no not at all i'm just now generalizing summer camp movies i guess but the film kind of plays like a summer camp movie sometimes yeah bush you were saying that this kind of balance is quite rare in cinema and that it's also frankly quite hot and exciting because there's this totally new kind of tension that we're now also exploring how well the film tries to portray that but you know uh the beguile is a quite recent film it's only a couple of years old i'm wondering if there's any other films that it made you think of or some other maybe older films that have that tension for you or show that balance or give you those same feels as that the beguiled can give you i don't know if the beguiled gives me Feels, feels. <laughs> per se. I think it's, it's interesting to talk about this subject and to, to have this film as an example. Yeah. I don't think it's an erotic movie per se, no. but it's interesting and it's good. But there's this one film that I keep returning to and I know you all like it. It's called Dirty Dancing. Now I have the time of my life. <laughs> it is feels. hot. It's, uh, yes, feels. But it's also very interesting. And I really liked it when I was a child. Uh, this is a film from 87. So it came out when I was seven years old. But I remember watching it on VHS, I think. And I even taped all the songs. And I knew this movie by heart. And then I forgot all about it when I was a little bit older. And I uh, only recently 
or let's say 10 years ago or something, I uh, rewatched it and I thought, this is a really good movie. And I don't think it's really well directed or interestingly directed. It's kind of bland and serious in a way. The tone is strange in, in a sense. It could have been more fun in a way. Mm. But still, it's... Um, the story is really interesting. The dance scenes are really exciting, I think. I was watching a scene this afternoon. It's when Baby, the leading protagonist, she walks into the room where they are all dirty dancing. <laughs> and this scene always makes me cry. I think it's so beautiful. And it's just like people dancing rock and roll and really raunchy. And it's like they're simulating sex. And I think it's really emotional in a way. And I also really like it because, and that's the thing with rock and roll dancing or this type of dancing, that it emphasizes the masculinity of the man and uh, the femininity of the women, but they're equal in another way. I mean, rock and roll dancing is really silly and it's kind of harsh in a way, yeah. but the women are silly and harsh as well. Yeah. And that is really beautiful to see. And also, Dirty Dancing is also a film about class. And so when all these people are dancing together, there's no difference between them. So mm. I think that's really beautiful. And also, yeah, it's hot in a way. I like that you're also crying at the movies. This is a returning theme in the podcast. Yeah, I heard. <laughs> <laughs> so join the club. One of us, one of us. We accept a one of us. We accept a one of us. Gooba gobble, gooba gobble. Yeah, when people are dancing ex expressively, then I always have to cry. I don't know why that is. I have to look into that. <laughs> yeah. There's another scene in Dirty Dancing where they kiss for the first time, but it's not really about the kiss because it's about the dancing. So they're dancing really close and it's private. And at the beginning of the scene, he has his shirt off for some reason. So of it's, course, it's Patrick Swayze. It's Patrick Swayze. <laughs> Nobody puts baby in a corner. And then she says to him, first she confesses her love to him in a way, and then she says to him, come dance with me. So she's in control, and he, he's like, okay, we're going to dance. And then she is very clearly watching him and enjoying his naked body. She, she's caressing his back. And then he takes off her shirt. So it's really like also balanced out in a way. Mm -hmm. But she takes the lead, which is unusual to see. It's not only erotic, it's interesting. It's something that you don't see that often and you don't see it in a mainstream movie. Yeah. Mm. What do you think about Dirty Dancing? Well, I haven't seen it. I want to go home right now and, and watch it after this description. because It sounds lush and interesting and layered. I've seen it like years and years and years ago before it sort of got reappraised as of late. But a couple of, I think two years ago, we screened it because it had an anniversary. And um, I started getting these stories on our Instagram in. And it was like, I think like eight different stories of women filming the lift and singing along. And it wasn't a sing-along screening. So people were just making their own sing-along screening out of it. And then I realized wait a minute, I missed out on the evolution of this film, actually. So, so I really want to rewatch it. Yeah, you should. Well, the thing is, it's interesting because you see this uh, the desire of this woman and this girl, actually. She's really young in the movie and she's discovering her sexuality. She's breaking away from her parents and her father, especially. It's kind of corny as well. But this movie is directed by a man. And of course, that's possible. 
but it's actually written by a woman and it's autobiographical or mm. in a way or semi-autobiographical. So that made me think, is all this excitement that is in a movie, is it put in there by her or by him? That's a good question. Do you have an assumption or an idea about it? I really don't know. Yeah. I can't really tell when I'm watching it. Mm. Yeah, like I said, it's also corny in a way and it's very traditional in other ways than these specific scenes that I've been talking about. Yeah, I don't know what the exciting part of the movie is and who put it there. Yeah, because there's like, when thinking of male versus female directors, there's often this kind of tangent that, well, you know, in fact, female directors can also make brooding masculine films. You have your Catherine Bigelow, you have your Elaine May, you know, you have the, the Hitchhikers. But doesn't really that often get reversed? Can male directors explore maybe female desire, sexuality, sensuality mm -hmm. in, in the same balanced manner. And you seem to say that maybe they can or... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, of course. Why not? However, it seems to be that <laughs> often the dominant films that are made by men often repeat the same, let's say, patriarchal, cis, hetero, dominant... The thing is, when you take Paul Verhoeven, which is one of my favorite directors, and he has this archetype of the, the bitchy woman, the, mm -hmm. the, the high buy. And so in Spetters, for example, you have this opportunistic woman. Yeah. I really enjoy watching this character that he always serves us. And not because I think she's real, but I think it's interesting because she, she tells me something about Paul Verhoeven and how he views <laughs> women, which is not per se bad. I mean, he, he respects these women. Yeah. But there is something about the sexual anxiety of the male, mostly, it seems, in his films. Like, I recently, when the cinemas were open, saw Total Recall again. Your mind. It is the center of your life. It is everything you hear. Everything you see. Everything you feel. It is everything you are. How would you know if someone stole your mind? Which is just basically one yeah, big libidinal holiday. Yeah, and you have the Sharon Stone character. Yeah, yeah. who's like this insane power fantasy of a f person that is first your wife and then the lethal spy that tries to stop you in your own quest for yeah. sexual freedom, I guess, because you're chasing another girl. To, to Mars or something, yeah. Consider that a divorce. It's interesting, and it's, it's in Hitchcock films as well. I mean, he obviously feared women, but he was also uh, hypnotized by them. He found them very interesting, and he also punishes them in his movies, which is horrible to look at, I think, but it, it's interesting, and it tells me something about Hitchcock, and it tells me something about society as well, and how women are viewed. But often, you know, when people say, when they're talking about movies, they say that, you know, you need to have a big conflict or a big clash and you argue for something that's more balanced, which would argue against that. However, it seems that maybe in balance, you can also have those clashes, but it goes against the grain of what we assume is good film drama. Yeah, but finding balance is something different from... Maintaining. Or maintaining balance. Yeah. I mean, like in The Beguiled. Yeah, they're searching for this balance, but it's never balanced out. Yeah. What do you think, Kiriko? Well, one thing I'm noticing is that I'm 
also earlier talking about the beguiled, right? It it shows how perhaps me as a woman looking at this film, I already leave from a standpoint of distrust towards men. So everything I search for in the character of this man, who is clearly, of course, in the back of my head, created by Sophia, and it shows how I'm almost on a quest on finding out how he is the male I want to hate, which I think is also the case when when I look for female sensuality or a real woman in a in a woman made by a man. I'm thinking of La Vida Del, which knowing first time when I was watching it, knowing it was made by a man, at every scene, sex scene, love scene, emotional scene, I always had in the back of my head, ah, but how can I distrust this man? Which is a bit unfortunate, but it goes along the lines with you watching a Paul Verhoeven movie, learning something about Paul Verhoeven, which is not the case, I would say, when I'm looking at Sofia Coppola movies, because then I feel a form of trust in Sofia. It's funny with La Vida Adele, because that film was obviously framed in this kind of emancipatory frame that, you know, finally you get to see explicit sex between two women on screen in this kind of, you know, naturalistic fashion but then i guess people also came after him because maybe it was in fact not naturalistic at all and mostly it stemmed from his own male fantasy of what female intercourse looked like mm -hmm. and then i guess you maybe are kind of proven right subsequent films were only about just looking at bodies and gazing which may might be fine in itself i'm actually kind of looking forward to going to see all the Mactube films because everybody hated them so much. And well, I, that last one was apparently a shit show. Everybody in Cannes was so over it that now... But I that think also had to do with the fact that got re he was really controversial at that moment as well. Yeah, but it's like maybe there is merit in it from the standpoint that Basha gives, you know, that like, okay, you know Paul Verhoeven is upfront Paul Verhoeven. You can see his films in a sense at face value and take out of them what you need from them or appreciate also the let's say in quotation marks problematic aspects and give them value and analyze them same goes for Hitchcock so why not for Kashis but I mean yeah with La Vida Dao I can sense that you are somehow I think I'm I'm split down in the middle I think Kashis is or La Vida Dao is not the greatest example because there's so much around that film which kind of makes it hard to appreciate the film for what it is, I guess. Mm. But no, I, I agree with you, Basha. I, I think we shouldn't be looking for an industry that makes films which don't sort of have those raw edges to it where you go like, wait a minute, I kind of don't like this, but apparently this is what Paul Verhoeven wants to show me. This is how you have sex in a swimming pool. <laughs> Flipping it over, when I first saw a portrait de la jeune vie en veux, is that correct? Yes. Boom, hit it on the nail. I was incredibly aware that I was, as a man, watching through a woman's point of view, which I really enjoyed and made the film very weird to watch for me as well, because you are in some way very familiar with how women are portrayed and how this, okay, this is a lesbian relationship, so it's a bit different than when a woman f films a heterosexual relationship. But I thought it was very interesting. I was looking at desire portrayed by a woman. I was very much aware of the gaze there being very different. Mm. Well, I think also now that we've named two films with 
lesbian relationships. Supposedly, it's the modern hack of a filmmaker to make a super sexy film as everyone is pleased, both men and women, and we're all eventually still looking at super hot women. So Yes. <laughs> it's like, it is the least <laughs> yes. controversial road to explore what I guess Bosch is also suggesting to find this balance in desire anyhow, in any situation, in any film, I mm -hmm. guess. But I think it, that Tom is being made aware of his own desire when he's watching this movie. I mean, that's interesting because you're watching something that you usually don't watch and you think, oh, I'm having feels and what are these feels? And it's different from what I normally feel. So it poses all these questions and that is interesting. Yeah. And I think that should happen more often. And still, like you say, Kiriko, it's still in Portrait de la Jeune Vie en Feu, it's these very attractive young women and it's all very soft and smooth and... It isn't edgy in a way. It's very romantic, and but it still poses these questions. So it is edgy in an, in another way. Mm -hmm. We should have more movies like uh, this one, or in in different ways and from different female directors and on topics that we aren't used to. Yeah, agree. Did you see that film, Basha, uh, The World to Come, which will no. also screen at IFFR yes. uh, Film Festival mm, Rotterdam? Really curious about that I, one. I like that film a lot because it's also about how, you know, it's also a pre-electricity lesbian romance drama, which is becoming a modern genre. But without, <laughs> you know, reducing the films to the, to the genre bit, what I really like about this historical take is that it's also very much a film that tries to, I guess explain or show how desire gets brushed away when we look at history in itself because you have like for instance the housekeeping book where you do the administration and that's a place that only states the facts you know how much money did we make how much are we saving how much are we spending and it leaves out all of those complex feelings that also compose and make history and that were you know uh, all living through and forgetting from other people. And that film kind of highlights that. And I mm. really like that because it also super consciously says, you know, we're often not thinking about desire in relation to history, which is something that I guess all of these genres do. But this one tries to kind of transcend that a bit. Yeah. I see what you mean, but I think there are lots of raunchy diaries and letters. Yeah, and for sure. there is yeah. a lot of uh, desire in history. But it's like, when you think about desire in history, you think about your grandfather and grandmother having sex or something. I mean, it's that's. I think that that is the reason why we don't like connecting history to desire. Yeah, which I think Sophia has very successfully done also in Marianne's Monet, mm -hmm. for example, which is a completely new and super sexy way of looking at history and... and also with dancing and rock music. Yes. Let them eat cake. That's such nonsense. I would never say that. I remember when that came out, everybody hated it. And I loved it. But ah, oh, so this, I'm so yeah. I'm such a contrarian. I didn't like it uh, <laughs> either back then. And I didn't like Lost in Translation. I was kind of anti back then. And now I see how it all fits together. And I love Marie Antoinette. And it's about desire, not only sexual desire, but the desire to enjoy luxury and food and pretty things. And it's yeah. all connected to each other. And at the end, it's just emptiness. I mean, it's, it's very hollow. I want to briefly go back to Colin Farrell. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> but uh, it's a question also for Bashi because you know Colin Farrell has had his moments of being the romantic lead in some very eccentric weird films admittedly like in 2005 2006 he was in the terrific double bill of the new world and Miami Vice you know mm. both of them being this like super hunky guy but also not quite in, you know it's not a conventional hero I guess in both films he was a, a little bit before that he really was this new hunk everybody yeah. was just i mean you're all a little bit younger than i am yeah. and i remember when he came on the stage and everyone was like this is the guy and then he started doing more interesting things yeah and i don't want to model myself after him but i <laughs> always i think he's in a way my male desire crush because i think i'm just too much in love with the New World and Miami Vice. Yeah. And he's total sleazebags in both films. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love him for it. Um, but I'm wondering how you, you know, perceive some of these films in the context of what we've been talking about earlier. There could be made a case that Miami Vice is also about finding a balance. You know, the Gon Lee character. I don't know if you've seen the film. I've seen it, but back then, and I haven't yeah. rewatched it. Oh, I think and I actually, I rented it from the library this week so i'm gonna yes. watch it yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, i'm very excited to hear what you will think about that film but it's like do you still like well we already talked a bit about the paul verhoeven hitchcock thing but even if if the director is different do you still find attraction in some of these more let's say heteronormative depictions unbalanced representations of sexuality and desire or are you also maybe now at a point where you don't need those as a critic or film watcher it's still interesting mm. i do draw a line there was this tendency in the 90s to really exaggerate in a nasty way so you have films like fatal attraction yeah where the woman is this monster and not an interesting monster not like the paul verhoeven yeah. uh, female monsters i don't know what you're up to I'm going to tell you it's going to stop right now. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on until you face up to your responsibilities. What responsibilities? I'm pregnant. I'm going to have our child. Alex, that's your choice, honey. That has nothing to do with me. I just want to be a part of your life. Oh, this is the way you do it, huh? Showing up at my apartment? Well, what am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. So that's not interesting to me. It's nasty and it makes me feel bad. But I do really like uh, Michael Mann movies, which are, they are heteronormative and they are sort of, I, I view them as male fantasies. Yeah. A movie like yeah. Thief, the way this movie ends is complete male fantasy, I think. But I, I guess Eat is like the ultimate male fantasy, that you're like a stone cold professional and that you're able to immediately disperse of your romantic interest in the in the heat of the moment you know that you have that sense of professionality and respect for yourself that's like the ultimate male guy fantasy i feel yeah i mean ashley judd plays val kilmer's wife i believe and she brushes him off at the end of the film because police are breaking into their house and he's in the car in front of the door and she, she's on the balcony and just goes with her hand like oh, this. Oh, yeah. So he can drive yeah, off. Yeah, she's like so his accomplice. the females in that film are also only really there to get them their men out of the high situation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and to facilitate or to... Right. 
or to be shouted at by Al Pacino. Yeah, they're not. I can't even remember the female parts in Heat. Well, wait, Al Pacino doesn't shout at the women. He shouts at the new guy that watches the TV of his in the new house, which actually reinforces Bush's point that <laughs> the TV is more important than Al Pacino's ex-wife. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can ball my wife if she wants you to. You can lounge around here on her sofa in her ex-husband's dead tech postmodernistic bullshit house if you want to. But you do not get to watch my fucking television set. Michael Mann paints these pictures of a world without women, actually, where men interact with other men. And there's a lot of tension in his movies, but it's between men. That's fine. I can watch that. It's interesting. But there should also be movies about women or uh, women and women or men and women. I mean, that's a balance that, that is not there yet, I think. Let me ask you a question, Bush. I know because we did a program back in the day that you love Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a movie that's one of my favorite films. Well, actually, it's my favorite film, as I said in the first podcast It's my episode. favorite film, I guess, also. It's a movie about desire gone incredibly wrong, I would say. I think it's the most horrible male-female relationship I've ever seen on film because he ends up killing her to re-resurrect her as something that he thinks, as his projection, actually, of somebody who never really existed. Do you think that anybody could make that movie now today? Wow. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. Or would, maybe. Maybe I should ask, would make that movie today? This is silly of me to say, but I think there are a lot of female directors that would love to make a movie like this. And I actually think it is about the Kim Novak character more than about the James Stewart character. For me, the first part of the movie, every time I watch it, I think it's a little bit boring and he's just following this woman around. Where is this going in a way, even if I know the movie by heart? And then in the second part of the movie, it's all about her. I find that part of the movie really, really emotional and I can completely relate to her, to this woman that is... I mean, it's a, a bizarre story, of course, but it's also about how you love someone He doesn't see who you are. He's only projecting this ideal woman onto you. And this is something that I think we we all have experienced. And maybe this is also something that is part of the, the female experience as well, what I recognize in that movie. And that is very, very emotional for me. And in the end, and this, of course, is a spoiler, but you already kind of said it. In the end, he survives and she dies. I mean... It's a tragedy. If I let you change me, will I do it? I do what you tell me. Will you love me? Yes. Yes. Fine. Then I'll do it. I don't care anymore about me. Maybe another fun question to ask is that I think if you're a man and you're watching films, there's so much you can aspire to be as you watch Colin Farrell and, and you want to become colonizer. him. <laughs> no. I'm wondering, Basha, is there a movie character who you aspire to be? Yeah, but that's the thing. Uh, when I was growing up, I always identified with the male characters because that were the movies that I was watching. So 
I don't think there were any female characters that I identified with. Ever? When I was growing up, no, I don't think so. Do you think if you would have been born now, you would have had a had a better identification with, with what you see on the screen? Yeah, I do think so. Because, of course, there were female characters as I was growing up. They were more to look at than to be. So all the Disney princesses, they were really pretty, but... I never aspired to be them. And the, the male protagonists in children's movies or the movies I watched growing up, they were more interesting. They were going on adventures and they were more like me in a sense. I mean, I didn't see myself as a Cinderella. How was that for you growing up? I think I said this before, but in a different episode, but I watched a lot of Jubilee as a child. So those were very cool ladies. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to think of examples of more recent films or films that I've seen as an adult, whether there are any lady figures who, who I would aspire to be. And I can't really think of anyone now, but maybe later. Could there ever be one which you could aspire to, which was directed by a man? Or because you said that you look at those films sort of fearing that you're looking through the gaze. Yeah, I guess I'm suspicious. Yeah. Always. Oh, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But, I mean, everything's possible. So I'm not excluding all male directors from creating role models of mine. No, right. No, no, definitely not. If I flip it, like, I remember, like, back in the day, I, I had this period where I watched so many film noirs, and I am that certain that my view of women was very much skewered because of those films. I think at the time I was, at some point, I was really looking for a Veronica Lake. But Veronica Lake really doesn't exist. Especially on screen, Veronica Lake doesn't exist. Off screen, Veronica Lake does exist. And that's a very sad yes. story, which we won't get into now. For me as a man, it also just really changed my view, even though it doesn't make sense. Because the cinemas didn't show me the, the reality, of course. Yeah. But imagine being a woman and watching those women all the time and thinking you have to be this woman and in real life noticing that when you interact with men that they also project these perfect women onto you and not not all the time but i have noticed that then you think like but i want to be a real person and i am a real person underneath this facade that you you are projecting onto me and this is what i find in vertigo and which is really interesting because it is made by a man and it is made by a man that is dubious in a, in a sense. But yeah, that, that's not a problem. He still gets this. Sometimes the more dubious figures are able to maybe, they're maybe more frank in breaking down that process. And if they're also talented directors, they can make insightful what that process looks like in I'd a sense if you say Clint Eastwood <laughs> right I now I'm gonna fucking Abel Ferrara at the moment ah, oh, but, oh, you know, there we go uh, Tarantino but yeah. these are directors that are dubious but they're also vulnerable yeah, and they exactly. can be vulnerable and they can reflect and that's important and, yeah. they, and they show their vulnerabilities in their movies and that makes it interesting yeah and, and commendable I mean like sometimes I look at the Abel Ferrara film and you, you kind of feel like this is a preemptive pre-cancellation film of his that just tries to, <laughs> you know, 
preemptively try to explain why he is actually all right and this is just part of who he is and it's just a, a ticking time bomb <laughs> like it's a different hitchcockian process <laughs> but maybe that's just also j- the pure quality of his films would you say this vulnerability in dissecting his own desires and projections yeah. and mm-hmm. making that insightful and i think that ultimately maybe that is one of the things that also makes me really click about film is when they make these kind of abstract processes tangible and make you feel them as well by proxy, which is, I guess, what most people also, like you, Tom, picked up in uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, right? It's so conscious of looking and being looked at and what that means and what that does and what, where that leads you. Yeah, and I think Celine Chiama, that she's finding out how her own desire works. And you can see that when you watch that movie. It's about what she finds erotic or sensual or, or, yeah, interesting in that sense. And this is what you're watching. And, well, it's very beautiful, to say the least. The flip of that is, of course, I think, uh, Claire Denise Beautravaille, which is, well, there we go with another homosexual relationship. Mm -hmm. but. That also has that same, it has the same gaze thing going on for it, where she's also very much exploring what sensuality is and desire. Yeah. But she, all her movies are very horny, I no, think. No, no, oh, all of them. Way like, horny. This is her, horny. her language. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, what is happening? I don't know, but it's very, very horny. I think the, her, she's like quintessential French in how much she just likes the body and (laughs) (laughs) even her vampire film is just like I mean vampires are always kind of horny but she Uh makes it extra messy and bloody I yeah there's one movie I wanted to talk about I don't know if you've seen it but I think Jane Campion's movies are Mm. are about desire and are also sometimes quite horny but then there's this one erotic thriller she made in 2003 in the Cut with Meg Ryan. Have you seen it? I haven't seen that. Hey, listen. I could be whatever you want me to be. You know, you want me to romance you, take you to a classy restaurant, no problem. You want me to uh, be your best friend and fuck you, treat you good, lick your pussy. No problem. Ain't much I haven't done. The only thing I want to do is beat you up. It was really received very well back then. McRyan was like transitioning from being this girly girl to this sultry woman and people were not accepting it. They were not (laughs) on board for that. And it's also, it's an erotic thriller made by a woman. I think that was also part of it. And then McRyan plays this really annoying woman. It's a really annoying character, but I, I love that about the movie. I mean, she's not... Yeah, she's not pleasing in any way. Mm. And she's caught up in this murder case and there's a detective played by Mark Ruffalo and it was the first time that I saw him and he's very, very sexy in this movie. There's also male nudity, a lot of male nudity. Early Mark Ruffalo's eerily sexy sometimes. Yeah, he has a mustache, (laughs) he's just very, very hot. So there's just a lot of sex in the movie, but it's also her watching. And so it's really an interesting movie as well. And it's really, if there is a female gaze movie, then this is it. Mm. You should really watch it. Yeah. This, how does this work as a double bill with Dirty Dancing? Mm. 
that could work. <laughs> I think I would uh, do a double bill with Andrea Arnold, one of oh, her yeah. movies. Because I think... I, yeah, I've seen all the Andrea Arnold films. She's also really good with desire. And yeah. really physical, you know, attraction and filming how physicality, what it looks like. Yeah. What do you think about early Michael Fassbender in that sense? I mean, Fish Tank. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's... Early mm-hmm. Michael Fassbender is also pretty horny. I mean, he, he is consistently hot. Like Mark Ruffalo, you don't really <laughs> think of him as that hot right now. Right? Consistently hot. I want to have that in my Instagram bio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's also a thing. Can the attractiveness of the actor, is it okay to make that part of your viewing experience? Yeah, or? that's a good question. Kiriko. Oh, man. I'm thinking of men whom I don't find attractive. But I think a good director can always make an unattractive man attractive. Like, I'm thinking of films where characters are explicitly called out for being ugly. Like, for example, there's the fake nose character in Sin City who is, you know, calls himself undesirable and ugly. And he, of course, has this ridiculous nose, but then turns out to be a hulk and sexy and aggressive and a man who eventually you end up wanting. So I think an undesirable man by a good director can always be made desirable but the other way around it's i think more difficult i'm trying to think of an whom i find unattractive girl who is then turned into someone who's beautiful and desirable well, there's something perverse about many of these romantic comedies right in which you have a, a young woman who wears glasses and maybe has her hair in a ponytail and then she's not attractive and then she gets the makeover and she just loosens up her hair and maybe you know opens up one button of her blouse and yeah. gets rid of the glasses and suddenly she's a stunner. But she's like, well, she was pretty attractive all the time. But it does get into the core of the question, maybe, that there's the first mechanism that we ascribe all of these virtues to people that are attractive in the first place and that we don't really go beyond that. When you have the makeover, that's part of the narrative. I mean, we're supposed to at first think like, oh, she's from B or something like that and oh now she's conventionally beautiful and I understand why the male protagonist finds her attractive all of a sudden I mean it's the director leading us to that conclusion but what about our own desires that are not part of the narrative I mean like I said uh, Colin Farrell was this really attractive actor and he was not only attractive but he was a hype so yeah. i went along with the hype and the the movies he was in even the bad ones i found interesting because he was part of it is that okay is it yeah. fake or is it i think it's okay i, I think... think it's also okay but i think there's the, the tension there that you can reduce somebody and their virtues that they portray in the film through their looks i think that megan fox has been historically a good example of somebody that was maybe in a, in a conventional way too good looking for the films that she was playing in almost because that was in the end sometimes the only thing that people were casting her for and that really you know took a claim of her fame and made her less visible in hollywood after all which is a weird paradoxical thing but mm-hmm. i yeah it's like there's this mechanism that we will then only desire conventionally good-looking people, though it might have been interesting to also continue this line of balancing and 
effort not only with incredibly hot people, but also just with very ordinary people. I would almost say that Megan Fox is maybe a satire of somebody who is good looking. Well, that's your opinion, I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's how she's cast Absolutely. in Jennifer's body. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that was yeah. good casting. That was good casting. Yeah. 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 Very conscious. But usually I go for the more, not the, the hunky types. So it doesn't have to be that conventional. I mean, yeah. But Tom, what do you think about desire being part of the viewing experience and your experience of the mu movie and your opinion of the movie? Harking back to what I said about uh, Portrait, it's, I, I enjoy that very much. I find it very interesting to be aware of a sort of layer in between me and watching the film, like the prism of my experiences, which shapes me. And the funny thing, of course, is that in that prism are also films, as I said, with the Veronica Lake problem. Uh, Veronica Lake problem. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a Veronica Lake problem. It's like... It shows you while you're watching a film how films also very much influence you in real life and how those desires get molded in very, very odd ways. And that I was very aware of. Also, not only watching film, but also very much in interacting with people or falling in love with women, which many times I fall in love with a woman where I at some point realized that I was projecting something onto her, which wasn't even there. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Well, that was the end of my story. <laughs> and on that note... <laughs> One of the things that we are talking about today is desire and sex. And the things that relate to sex, not maybe directly, but is food. <laughs> and on our next episode, we will be talking about food. Wow. And how that relates to sex in a way, because the movie that we will be watching for our film club is Tampopo, which Basha has probably also seen. I have seen. never seen it. Oh, and I think oh, you will love. Yeah, but yeah. movies like that make me so hungry. I can't watch those. <laughs> hungry and, and horny. horny. Well, it's because yeah, you know, Tampopo is such a strange movie that it's it almost makes you experience the sensuality of eating something in a very sexual manner. Tampopo is part of Celebrating Cinema Film Club. We're gonna watch it for our next episode. Bashi, you can immediately join because you haven't seen the film yet. Mm. Then you can look out for our next. <laughs> episode thank you so much Basha, for being here at the celebrating cinema podcast yeah sure and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode as always you can write in with your questions or stories to celebrating cinema at lab111.nl and for all our show notes and our ever-evolving list of films mentioned at celebratingcinema.com till next time